0: Anti-Semitism is alive and well in Canada, but those who target Jews rarely end up joining the faith themselves. That's why our guest story on today's show is so striking. The very people she was told to hate when she was a teenager later became her family. And her journey from angry, closeted teenager to gay Jew looking to make a difference in the world was a long, dramatic one. That, on this episode of Congregation. I'm Emma Presswich, a news editor at HuffPost Canada. started this podcast because I wanted to talk to young people about their faith and how it fits into their lives. A Few months ago I talked with Elisa Hadigan, a Jewish author and public speaker. She's in her early 40s but converted to Judaism only a few years ago.
1: To me it wasn't like joining something but going back to something. So it was like the whole idea of a river
0: going back to its original source. As a teenager, she was part of the Heritage Front, a notorious Canadian white supremacist and neo-Nazi group. But the kindness that she was shown when she needed to escape helped her shed her toxic beliefs.
1: Being in hiding for all that time and staying with people of every faith and nationality made me realize that everything I'd been told was a
0: lie. We talked about where hate comes from, what it's like to be Jewish when you have no family, and how a trip to Europe to uncover her roots changed her life. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me here. I've read a little bit of your writing about being a Jew, and I know that you have some history in your family with Judaism, but you just learned that very recently.
1: Well, yeah, I learned it because the Jewish side of my family is on my father's side, and he died when I was very young, and uh, he was much older when I was born. He was almost 60, so he didn't share a lot about his background and his past. And he died when I was 13, but my family had broken up even before that. And it was much later, after I'd uh, gone through my own journey of uh, into the white supremacist and neo-Nazi movement, and later after I left it, that I went back to Romania and, and discovered my roots
0: there. So you didn't know anything about your father's about his own personal faith or it's, his it wasn't a, was it a personal faith? He was not
1: religious like to start from the beginning my whole family was not religious and I grew up in communist Romania where religion wasn't encouraged either. So he was also born in uh, Transylvania. and um, Well, he grew up in Transylvania. He was born in, in Hungary. And so we were, we were living in Bucharest. And so I wasn't as connected to his side and the village he had come from. I remember my grandmother when I was a little. The only clue I had was she was very particular about... Not having meat and milk, and having that division, and and she would just tell me you can't mix them or you'll get a tummy ache and it's not good. But I didn't understand, and so I kind of brushed it past me and and didn't pay attention to those slight little clues. And then, um, like I said, we immigrated to Canada when I was eleven in eighty six, and uh, my father hated it here, and he went back to Romania within a year, and then he died. And my mother really couldn't stand his side of the family. There was a lot of bad blood there. And so she cut me off from being able to communicate with any cousins and uncles I had in his village. So I basically didn't have any kind of knowledge about his background a lot. And also, we didn't practice any religion. I know I was baptized Romanian Orthodox, but that's pretty much the only thing I I knew. um, And I have baby pictures of me in a cauldron as they do in the Orthodox faith. But other than that, no, I,
0: I had no clue about any of that. Hmm. So you mentioned some white supremacists.
1: After I came to Canada, I had a very difficult time adjusting and ended up in CAS and Children's Aid for a while. My family was abusive. And I ended up feeling like I didn't belong in this society. I had this kind of what happens to a lot of kids who sometimes come from a completely different environment. They come into this country and they don't quite know where they belong. And so I fell in At age 16, I I saw a TV program where somebody was talking about being proud in your European heritage. And, you know, and I felt like I'd been bullied and singled out because I was so different when I came. And so I ended up reaching out to this group who was known as uh, the Heritage Front. And basically, I... um, Left a message on their hotline, uh, which was all about European pride and just embracing your culture. And within 24 hours, I was uh, called back by the leader of the Heritage Front, Wolfgang Droge. And basically within a month, he had me talking at white supremacist rallies and convinced me, gave me the literature to memorize and... Within a year of that, I was actually on American Networks. I was on the Montel Williams, representing Canada's far right. So I had a very rapid trajectory from feeling bullied and wanting to belong to a group that would make me feel welcome and and falling in with these guys who were went from white pride in your heritage to hating everybody else very, very quickly. And by then, I had just swallowed it all up. And Wolfgang introduced me to Ernst Zondel, who for 30 years was um, the, the world's greatest publisher of uh, Holocaust revisionist propaganda. And he lived on Carlton Street in Toronto. And he churned out this crap and sent it all over the world and Canada allowed him to get away with it um, because there was a warrant out for his arrest back in Germany where questioning the Holocaust is illegal. But here he was able to do it uh, with pretty much impunity. So I worked for him as an errant girl and they became my family. And I remember when I met Ernst for the first time, I didn't have any particular issues with Jews. I, I just... He convinced me like in the first week that he had been persecuted that there's this like global cabal of of zionists who run the world and and he showed me heavy textbooks with all this data that I later learned was all fake that had come from England from uh, a guy named Fred Leuchter and uh, who was connected with David Irving and they were actually going to Auschwitz swabbing the walls and trying to say we did chemical analysis and there was no Zyklon B but this was all f- forged of course i mean it was all proven later but To a 16-year-old who basically my choice was either to be on the street or be in an abusive household, having these guys tell me that you are our future and we need you and you're so smart and, you know, all this love bombing, they basically convinced me that they were being persecuted and I worried about them. (laughs) You know, so that's how I basically uh, got conned into believing that Jews were evil and they ran the world.
0: (sighs) And at a certain point, you you started to question. Yeah, and, and in a lot of these groups, and
1: basically all the white nationalist groups out there, whether this is 20 years ago or today, there's this v- facade of pride in your heritage that is always, and 100% always backed up by this kind of violent, underlying, defend our beliefs at any cost. And there was a lot of uh, weapons gathering and people would smuggle weapons from across the border. And, you know, just in preparation for this race war that would come, and so we would have rallies and concerts and people would get beaten up afterwards. They would target gay people, Jew Jewish people, anybody, anybody they could. And and so this kind of like shift from political ideology and being in the comfort of this cocoon of a family and me questioning them about well, why why is there all this violence going on? And them saying, Don't just don't worry about it. This this is necessary because, you know, the war the race war is coming and we have to be prepared. And so at one point in time, when I was 17, I was given the names and phone numbers and and home addresses of activists who were part of the anti-racist action, which is was the Antifa of its day, and I was asked to go to a payphone and like call, threaten them, harass them, do terrible things that I didn't do, and and I asked the guy in charge of it, who was Grant Presto, who was the second in command of the Heritage Front. Why are we targeting so many women in particular? And he's. Grant said,
0: Bristow turned out to be uh, a, a CSIS. A, a CSIS small,
1: yeah. He was an agent provocateur all the way to the end. He, uh, never contributed to any convictions of any white supremacists in Canada, but at least a million dollars went into this operation. But I didn't know this at the time. All I knew is that the the group was led by Wolfgang Droge and Grant Bristow. And Grant came in and asked me to do all these things to target the left. And not just me. He asked military skinheads, people who were part of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, which later was... um, basically dissolved because they had killed uh, some airborne regiment, beat up uh, a poor uh, kid in Somalia. And there were all these skinheads and white supremacists in the airborne regiment. So that was dismantled. But we had Heritage Front members who were airborne regiment people, and Grant would ask them to terrorize and harass activists and I had asked Grant why are we targeting like the majority of the people targeted were women and he turned to me and said with a giggle uh, because women are the easiest to break they're more emotional they'll fall apart sooner so he got a kick out of that and that's I think the moment when I started to identify with those women Um, when it hit me that this guy is just doing it for kicks you know I knew that I didn't want to be part of that anymore. But by then, like within a year, I'm still a minor, they're forging papers for me to go on American talk shows. And they are everything I have. And I'm completely lost. And I don't know what to do. And they're pushing me to date men in the movement. But I was the only female in that whole group who didn't have a boyfriend. And they were looking at me funny, like, what's wrong with you, you're supposed to go out and have Aryan babies. And it dawned on me then when I was pushed to harass gay activists that I was gay. And you know, I didn't know what to do. So I had just been a couple of months after I turned 18, I tried to kill myself, I woke up in the hospital at Women's College Hospital. And I realized the nurse said, well, we can't let you out unless somebody can come and pick you up or we have to put you on psychiatric hold. And I looked in my pocket. I realized I couldn't call any of them. And the only piece of paper I had in my pocket was the name of this activist, this ARA uh, activist who I was supposed to harass for being gay. And so I called her and surprise surprise she actually came she wasn't sure we met in secret for a month and she got me to actually took me a month to say I think I'm gay Mm -hmm. uh, to her that's how um ashamed and uh, embarrassed and brainwashed I had been and then after I came out to her and she said what do you want to do I can try to help you leave I said I am so deep into this thing that I don't want to just leave I want to make up for everything I've contributed to and what they've done because they would have me I was like I'm very petite, and at the time, I was like 100 pounds, and they could send me into high schools to to put in flyers and lockers, even though I was a high school dropout, because I blended in. So, I don't know how many kids had been reached by those flyers, and I felt angry at all the people who had been beaten and terrorized and attacked, and there was a, a Tamil man who had actually been murdered after a concert. So... I decided I wanted to fight back. So Ruth put me in touch with this think tank out of Montreal and I met with them in secret. And for four months, I collected as much information. I signed over 30 affidavits as I could with a private lawyer. And then we approached the OPP to try to get witness protection for me. And I was willing to testify about everything in the Heritage front that I had witnessed. And they wanted to help me, but then they had been told to stay down by their superior. And we didn't understand what was going on till later, till we found out that Bristow's handlers had come in and cleared things up for him with the uh, many different police departments. But then I, I came to a point in that November of 93 uh, where I was confronted at Knife Point by uh, Wolfgang and basically said, Are you a rat? You're asking too many questions. You're behaving differently. So I had to go on the run. And, um, I ended up being in hiding for several months, and then I ended up testifying against Wolfgang. And to other where did you go people.
0: when you were in hiding?
1: All sorts of activists and grandmas and, uh, you know, a black reverend out of Nova Scotia. I was literally all along the eastern coast of of Canada. Um, I traveled like no more than three, four nights sleeping on sofas. And there was this whole wonderful network of people who just opened their doors to me. And that's actually, I think it's because of them that I realized how, how humans are just all the same, you know? I stayed with students and with Francophones, with people of every race and ethnicity. And I was so grateful that they would just like not question what I had done and they would just help me be in hiding before and after the trial, that it, it their compassion just completely changed me. And and yeah, so I, I testified against Wolfgang and two other heritage from people in 94. They were sentenced uh, for obstruction of justice and they served some a, f- a few months in prison. During that time, uh, Bill Dunphy of the Toronto Sun came out with an expose saying the second in command, Grant Bristow was a CSIS agent. So the Heritage Fund basically imploded, exploded. (laughs) Grant was whisked away by CSIS and uh, Wolfgang was in prison. So it was like a one-two blow that helped end the
0: organization. Mm. So at a certain point, you opted to come back to Judaism or not come back to it, but come back to your family's faith. Yeah. You were taught to hate Jews.
1: I was. Fortunately, by, by, you know, being in hiding for all that time and staying with people of every faith and nationality made me realize that everything I'd been told was a lie. So there was this whole process that took a long time to try to understand what is the truth, because from age 16, I had been completely brainwashed and given fake facts eventually i i got a gd when i was in nova scotia and i went to university as a mature student at 19 i went to school in ottawa and i tried to move away from the whole thing you know i i was gay i was living under an assumed name i was just having a childhood that i never had and uh, all that was fine so four or five years later i graduated i taught esl in korea and then i made enough money in korea to to actually be able to afford to go back to Europe for the first time since I was a kid, I I took that whole summer off. It was 2001. And I wanted to travel to Auschwitz. And I just felt this really strong need to connect to Jewish Europe and to go to the birthplace where my father had born and to find the relatives maybe in Transylvania if they were still alive. And when I took that journey, something felt like, because I was going eastward. So I I went to Auschwitz first, and then I ended up in Hungary, and then I ended up in in Romania and looked up that village. And I just felt like I'm part of this somehow, I'm connected. And I don't know if it was a weird genetic memory or something. But there was one point in time when I was walking through Debrecen, which is the town where my father was born. And, and I stopped in front of this synagogue, the windows were smashed out, and it was just in disarray. And I looked at it, and I just felt a familiarity and I can't even explain this. So then I took the train, crossed the border, I went to Romania, I tracked down the village where he had come from, and I found an uncle and some cousins, and they said, We have some belongings from your grandmother. And then I found this box that had the name Kohan, which is the Jewish the Hungarian name for Cohen on it. And then I started to piece it all together and realized that sometime Maybe my grandmother or my great grandmother's time, they had abandoned the Jewish faith and they had moved to a different town. And this was where a lot of pogroms and horrible things were happening in Romania at the time. And they had left their surname behind and adopted the place name, which is Hatseg. and my name is Hatigan. And uh, I realized they, were, you know, they had been Jews. And the weirdest thing is like, it's like I knew. It's it, I thought it was the greatest irony that I was able to shut down an anti-Jewish and white supremacist group. And I was able to spy on Ernst Zondo and steal part of his list of uh, supporters from all over the world. And that it was a, a half-Jewish girl who had done that. Uh, so it just made me even prouder. But then I had this whole kind of, I wanted to convert to Judaism. I wanted to go back to that roots and reclaim it. But there was this whole shame factor. And... How do I tell a rabbi that I was a Nazi and and join the flock? And also I have all the problem about believing God in the first place and seeing that so much religion, so many times religion has been used as a tool to oppress and, you know, manipulate hate in people, like from the Inquisition and the Crusades and everything. So how do I justify that and seeing all these terrible things? Do I even believe in God? So there was that process. And then it took me... About 10 years, and then the technology became available with 23andMe, and and I took a DNA test that connected me with like a thousand Jewish relatives, and it confirmed it, and then it was, I was so ready, and it wasn't even a matter of, can I do it, I'm I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna reclaim that past that was taken away.
0: I thought that was interesting what you said about actually believing in God in the first place and being anyone who's not a senior and being a religious person is is uncommon in our society I think I mean having a faith that matters to you and that is core to how you live your life is big and when I talk to people I'm I'm Christian but I go to am part of a more liberal denomination called United Church oh yeah <laughs> and about them. Yeah. a lot of people will tell me, I love the idea of your church. I love its values. I love how queer friendly it is. I love the social justice work it yeah. does. I love the idea, but I just don't believe in God. So how did you get to a point where God became evident to you?
1: Well, in Judaism, I was told that it's not necessary to believe 100% as long as you do the rituals right and you say the right prayers. Somehow the faith will come at, through the process of ritual. So... I decided to embark with just kind of that, I still wasn't 100% sure of what I was doing, but it comforted me knowing that I'm repeating the same rituals that my ancestors would have. So to me, it was like every time I said a prayer, I it was communing with them and communing with the history and the legacy. It was literally reclaiming the heritage that kept me going. And, and I converted conservative, even though it's not a good match with me now. Like I go to a reform synagogue uh, downtown, but, um, I wanted to make it as kosher as possible <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like the hardest part for me uh, has been like last year i was invited i, I was speaking at international women's uh, jewish women's organization about judaism and my path back and how it's very hard when you don't have a family to be in a religion that celebrates and unites and, and you know hebrew is an issue let's face it I, I still can't understand hebrew and the the religion you know there's a lot of that involved in singing and and things that I just I it's not easy for me to learn. And then somebody in that group invited me to her Passover seder with her family, and it was beautiful. And I brought my partner, and we had this most amazing experience. And that's in a way it was very bittersweet because it really hit home how there were three generations of a grandmother and the family and the children, and I knew that for them it's celebrating the living, whereas for me. Jewish prayer is communing with the dead and remembering the dead, because I don't have any family that's alive anymore. And in terms of my father's family, Deborah said they were all evacuated in 44. All, the whole Jewish community was gone, I heard, in 22 days, I think. You know, his side of the family is more, most likely dead, or maybe I'll find some of them on, on a DNA site. But really, it's very hard when, when you join a new religion, when you, you don't grow up as a toddler learning all this from your from your parents.
0: Certainly. Is your partner Jewish too?
1: My partner is not Jewish, but actually has a Jewish background. Like her Ah. grandfather, uh, she has a Jewish surname. Her grandfather was a Jew as well. So we have that in, we're both kind of secular and we both want to understand it and practice it more. But at the same time, there's this kind of inner conflict about Religion and all the terrible things that we've seen religion contribute to. So we, there's just this constant paradox between religion being good and religion being used as a as an evil force. Like last week, I was in, at Columbia University in New York. I was invited uh, along with Mubin Shaikh, who's uh, an ex-Taliban um, individual who's also out of Toronto. You know, we basically talked about how radicalization, de-radicalization, and how he explained, like for him, religion really was the thing that was twisted in order to radicalize him so seeing that and and working with people who were victims basically of of fanatics who twisted religion makes me so kind of nervous about taking any religious too close to to my heart even though I consider myself completely spiritual but it's just hard to see that
0: tell me a little bit about your decision to actually convert to Judaism
1: I couldn't not to. There literally came a time when I just, I wanted to be part of that community. Like to me, it wasn't like joining something, but going back to something. So it's like the whole idea of a river going back to its original source. And that's how I pursued it. So I did my best to adhere to the conservative conversion. You know, it was uh, very difficult in that, you know, there was a lot of stuff to learn, like just basic learning uh, curve. (laughs) But I had to do it. What were you required to do? Well, there's just a lot of uh, learning of Hebrew words and, and, you know, the calendars being different and the prayers and which holidays and, you know, just the what you do on which holiday and what what you're not supposed to eat on that holiday so just a lot of that kind of things you know it's part of that the faith that I love and it's part of the people with whom I share heritage so it was good for me to learn it do I practice it all the time no I'm sorry but it's our history it's a collective history of of the faith and of the people so it was it was a wonderful process and then I actually converted on my own birthday because it just happened like you know when it was scheduled and when I plunged into to the mikvah and the mikvah is like this purifying ritual bath in which you submerge it's kind of like baptism actually Mm. and that's actually where baptism comes from the concept of a mikvah in which people dip and they come out as pure again i dipped three times and you know said the prayers and i came out as a jew and that was just a really transformative moment of my life
0: oh that's so wonderful so how has it changed the way you live your life being a jew as opposed to maybe 10 years ago?
1: I don't feel as alone anymore. You know, that's the bottom line. Even though I don't have family other than my partner.
0: You wrote a really beautiful blog post about uh, a piece of writing about your conversion and about the process of being submerged in the mikvah. (laughs) And you said something really beautiful at the end. You were talking about how you think people who are persecuted then end up going to persecute other people.
1: Yeah, that's that's a huge part of my life as well. And I'm actually working on a new book about my family. Like my book, Race Trader, which I wrote a couple of years ago, is about my journey in and out of the heritage front. And it's about my path but the next one is about my family and what they went through in their family and it's kind of the history of even oppression and communism in Romania and, and i realized that oppression can be state oppression onto the people and then it passes down through the people to their children and it's just the cycle of brutality just continues like my parents were deaf and they were suffered horribly in because they grew up in a world and in a society that that thought deaf and dumb people are basically like animals and you know, there were no rights to speak of. And so they suffered and they were bullied and they they were attacked for, sometimes physically attacked, for being like the village idiot, basically. And it was a horrible time. And so they grew up rough and, and hard. And they ended up being rough and hard with each other and with me. And you see the cycle of abuse, like, growing up in a communist country, going to school and seeing the teachers hit us and then the kids hitting each other. I have also heard these stories in children of Holocaust survivors that their parents end up being hard and kind of unreachable because they're so traumatized by what they witnessed and what they experienced in in their own childhoods that they can't be as open with their own. And and so it's sort of this whole cycle that goes from oppressed to oppressor.
0: Well, you mentioned Holocaust survivors and you mentioned you saw parallels in, you said, the Jewish-Arab conflict.
1: Yeah, it's one person hits the other, the other person hits back, and it just creates the cycle. I had the fortune of being, going to Israel for the first time um, two or three years ago, and, you know, while it was a wonderful experience for me because I, you know, I, I saw these historical places, I also saw the division, and I understood it. It really hit home even more because, you know, you go into neighborhoods and it's basically everyone is Ashkenazi do, like even at the waiters, everybody, you know, I, I don't see a lot of Arabs being integrated in some of those positions. And I and I understood what was going on. And I realized Instead, it's very simple to say they're oppressing us or they're 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 killing people innocent people and you know everybody blames each other everybody's you know hates each other even more but if you go back to what trigger that and and realizing that a lot of times the people who wound others the most are they themselves the most hurt so this whole cycle of people fleeing the war and coming out of the camps and going to Palestine and needing a place for themselves created this chain of events that has led us to today which is
0: just a tragedy it certainly is and i i had the privilege of traveling there a number of years ago in 2009 and we visited with some palestinian groups and they said something very profound it was one man in particular and he said i understand the suffering that the holocaust survivors went through i understand that deep legacy of of pain i can so why are some of these people inflicting pain on us and he said he saw a connection there, between that suffering.
1: 100%, there is a connection. And if we could just get everybody to understand, there would be peace. But, you know, that's the thing is we can deconstruct exactly where this is coming from. But once the person is hardened and once the, they become the oppressor, it's hard to reach them. Yes. And the more When it's so, a powerful yeah.
0: country. It's a very powerful, yeah. you know, so,
1: yeah. And, and, you know, and I worry about the whole what's happening i mean a two-state solution is obviously the only solution but it's if anything it's getting worse the orthodoxy is um i mean it's getting crazy over there they're speaking of conversions the the now they um they're basically deeming that any rabbis who convert people have to be on their list of of good rabbis or those conversions are not you know official and 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 it's sort of this whole huge power grab to continue the country as being even more orthodox, even more rigid and more right leaning and it's all gonna end badly. And I, I'm surprised that they don't see it, but
0: it's hard. Speaking of your own conversion, were you worried at all when you converted that someone would dig up your white supremacist past or I you know what, it's
1: it's weird because I don't feel like I am that person at all. So looking at that two year period of my life when essentially I was a minor, it was sixteen to eighteen It's almost like it's a different girl, you know, so looking at that and and I had this whole inner conflict. Like, do I talk about it with the rabbis when I'm converting? And I thought, well, that's not who I am now. And I've certainly done my best to shut down what I contributed to by by helping to shut down the heritage front. And I was at peace with not disclosing that information because I felt like. The person I was in that room when I had my Beit Din, which is the when you sit down with the three rabbis and uh, you know you have this whole interview process before they officially uh, declare that you're Jewish, I was the person I was in that moment. I wasn't that Nazi. I was the daughter of my ancestors, and I was the taking back what had been taken away from my ancestors. So that's, that's the point
0: that I was bringing. Well, that's so beautiful. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for this amazing discussion, and uh, I have to say I've done a lot of interviews, but it's it's always very superficial i find like in the media these days it's all about the headlines and the ted talks and you know that kind of a thing and to have somebody who's actually interested in the in the deeper conversation about what makes somebody choose a faith and and that connection and what changes somebody from oppressed to oppressor this is like the kind of conversations i wish more outlets would have and we would have every day
0: I was struck by what Elisa said about not having a family, about how that was part of why she joined both the Heritage Front and Judaism. I grew up with a supportive family that helped me understand Christianity and made sure I went to church. But they picked the faith for me. I don't know if I would have ever walked into a church on my own, especially not as an adult, when my beliefs are already set. Elisa became a Jew very intentionally. She just knew the synagogue was the right place for her. I feel like the United Church is the right place for me, but that could be because I've been going since I was a baby and it's shaped how I see the world. Also, it's nostalgia. Being in a church is comforting. I get why fewer people my age join religions as adults. They don't know what it's going to add to their lives. Unless they feel like something's missing. Like Elisa did. Thanks for listening to Congregation, a HuffPost Canada podcast that looks at how young adults are reinventing religion and spirituality. I'm Emma Prestwich, and you've been listening to Episode 6 with Elisa Haddigan. For more on this and to listen to other episodes, search congregation at huffingtonpost.ca.